Well, before we turn to God's Word, let's pray and ask for God to be with us at this time. Father, Lord Jesus, we do indeed turn our eyes to you, and we ask that we will be able to see your glory in your Word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to encourage you to turn with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, if you remember, we started a series in the book of Romans, I think last year, I I can't remember, maybe it was in 2020, or in the spring of this year, maybe it was in 2022, I can't remember. But um, we've been going through Psalms in the summer, and now we're going to pick up our study through the book of Romans, and when we left off at the end of May, we we got through with uh, Roman chapter 8, which is pretty much one of the pinnacle parts of, of all of Scripture, one of the pinnacle parts of the book of Romans alone. Um, and it was a good stopping point for us because we're, we're going to make our way into a section that should be understood together, which is chapter 9, 10, and 11. And so we're going to be encountering God in the context of this uh, passage I do want to give you a fair warning about this. It may not uh, feel that way to you, but as we work through Romans 9, 10, and 11, it is one of the most difficult chapters in all of the Bible. And there is an incredible amount of literature that have been written on these, these texts alone. And there are doctrinal separations by which position you take with respect to where you come down on Roman chapter 9, or Roman chapter 11, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a lot of interpretive mazes to navigate that is extremely difficult. Um, there's a lot of theological battles that have spilt blood on these, these chapters. Now, our attention as we work through this is to give attention to the text and to do the best that we can not to look at it through the lens of a specific theological position. And so that's going to be our attention as we do that, to remember that the Apostle Paul actually wrote this for a specific reason, with something in mind, that really had nothing to do about theological squabbles that came after him. And so not that those, those questions that are asked of this text are unimportant, but we want to just be as faithful as we can to what the text actually says. So as, as, I, as I work through this and as I study this, I would like you to pray for me as I do that and also be praying for yourself to be receptive to all that, that we hear in this context. But as we start Romans 9, the good news is, is that those issues don't come up right here. Um, and so I, I want us just to think, before we actually look at this text, I want us to just get maybe an overall picture of what the argument is in Romans 9, 10, and 11. There have been many that have thought that Romans 9 through 11, that Paul was, this was kind of an appendix, that he was actually making some statements in chapter 8, and then like any good preacher, he chases a rabbit for about three chapters, and that this doesn't have any cohesion to the unit as, as a whole. But what, everything that Paul is saying up to this, to this moment is preparing for him to say what he's getting ready to say next. Uh, he has an eye on this, this whole unit of thought of making everything cohesive and unifying, but he also has a pastoral heart that as he makes this 
statement that he's, he's going to make in these chapters. He is talking to a church that has both Jews and Gentiles. And there has something that has happened by the grace of God that there has been this incredible inclusion of Gentiles into the church. If you read the book of Acts, you can see that. If you read the epistles of Paul, it's very clear that God is doing a great work among the Gentiles. While at the same time that there are many Gentiles coming in, the Jews are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And so these are questions that Paul is, is asking, and, or that people are asking Paul, or he's perceiving that they're asking, questions such as, what, what about Israel? What about God's Old Testament people? Has he rejected them? Has he now shifted his attention to the Gentiles? And so these are the questions that may be coming up in the congregation that Paul is writing this letter to, and with a with pastoral sensitivity, he wants to answer these questions. So it's if this this section functions as a, a crucial part for Paul's argument in Romans thus far. And this section actually defends, when, if we could probably say, what is actually this section doing? It's defending the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. Charges that are being leveled, that since there's this Gentile inclusion, the Jews are rejecting the Lord Jesus, or are or, or being or rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, then God's not faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so to this, Paul is going to say, no, God is faithful. He is faithful. So he's going to defend the faithfulness and the righteousness of God. And when I say righteousness, not just God's moral purity, but defending God's right to work as he sees fit. God's right to save the Gentiles and God's right to reject the Jews. And so as, as we've been looking at this text, one of the things that we have hopefully that's come out of it is that the playing field for all of humanity has been leveled, both Jews and Gentile. All people stand under the wrath of God because of sin. Even though the Jews receive the law, they are lawbreakers just like the Gentiles. And since both are sinners and stand condemned, Righteousness or justification before God is obtained the same way, both Jew and Gentile, for every single person. Justification is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or in other words, that the way that we are made righteous before God is by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. And then that righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It is given to us. And so now that when God judges, he judges not on the basis of my righteousness, because I have none, but on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus, who is perfect in his righteousness. Because that's what it takes for us to enter into the kingdom of God. To enter into heaven, it requires perfect righteousness, and we have none. And so that's what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, because he was perfect in both his life, his active obedience, and also in his death, which is called his passive obedience. Perfect obedience is now applied to me and to you by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this justification that Paul talks about for all people 
is not new. That's what he argues in Romans 4, isn't it? It's as old as Abraham. And the way that Paul makes this argument is that Abraham was justified before the works of the law, thus becoming the father of all who are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus. And then beginning in chapter 5, the decisive question is whether one is in Adam or in Christ, not one's relationship with the law. Those who still live under the law are under the power of sin, while those who live under grace are free in Christ. That's the argument of chapter 6 through 7. In chapter 8, God's promises become a reality through the work of the Holy Spirit, and this same Spirit empowers God's people to keep the law. Further in chapter 8, we learn that the end-time blessing is poured out on all of God's people, including the Gentiles. So with all this in mind, the question pertains, what about Israel? Did the promises made to God's Old Testament people hold no meaning? Were the law, the sacrifices, and the temple worship for nothing? Now with the explosion, the, the explosive inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God by faith and the persistent unbelief of Israel, is God finished with Israel? These questions are not just important for Israel of that day and even for Israel today, but for all of God's people, especially when we consider the incredible promises that we find as New Testament Christians. And one of those promises that we saw was back in Romans chapter 8 in verses 31 uh, through 37, where he makes this statement in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or darkness or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or, or pearl, anything. And then he says, dramatically, nothing, absolutely nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the promise that is given. So if God hasn't kept his Old Testament promise to Israel, then what makes us think that he's going to keep his New Testament promise to us? And so that's why this issue is not only important for Israel of yesterday and today, but also even for us as Christians. Is God faithful to his promises? And I'll give you a, as a spoiler alert. Yes, he is faithful to his promises. He is faithful to his promises. So the issue is much deeper than just Israel. It's about the very character of God, his faithfulness, his righteousness, whether he's trustworthy or not. So, with his pen, Paul launches into this discussion in Romans chapter 9 to argue clearly and definitively God is faithful. God is righteous. And God is the one who acts in the way that he deems fit. And then, as we begin, starting with verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 9, we we see that the fact that Israel is presently excluded from the promises of God is not lost on Paul. This is not something that he just puts aside and, and has no bearing on his heart. In fact, when we read this text, we're going to see that Paul is very much invested in this question. That his, that his heart is being torn asunder as he thinks about the prospect that his kinsmen, his people, Israel, stand accursed. They stand outside of Christ. They stand in judgment of Christ. 
And this puts a great weight and a great burden on his heart. And we're going to see this sorrow here in, in, a, in just a moment. And, and it's, it's really made clear in Romans 10 and verse 1 when he makes this statement, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He has a burden that Israel would be saved by faith through Jesus Christ. Paul passionately desires Israel to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that Paul models the kind of burden that all of us need to have for lost people. He models the kind of anguish that should be deep in our souls and our heart that when we consider the prospect that we have family members, we have friends, we have neighbors, we have acquaintances at work, we have people in this world that are going to go to hell. And the very thought of that troubles Paul. And it's one of the things that propels him to be the greatest missionary that ever lived. To take the gospel where, where Jesus was not known. Not only among his kinsmen in Israel, but also among other people. Going to places where Christ was not named. Why? Because he had a burden for the lost. When he considered the fact that people stand in judgment... Because of their sins and their unbelief, it bothered him. It drove him. It propelled him to preach the gospel wherever he was. And I think it's something for us to consider. And as we, as we begin to encounter God in this text, that we ought to be praying, God, help me to have this same passion in my life for lost people. Give me this same burden. Give me this same anguish. Propel me to speak your truth the truth of your gospel to those that I know who, knew, who need Jesus Christ. So let's begin working through this text together. Romans 9 and verses 1 through 5. And notice what the Word of God tells us. He says, I tell the truth. In Christ I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So as we begin this, this our journey in this text, I wanted you to see a couple of things that comes out of here. Number one, there is a deep anguish. There is a burden for people who reject the gospel. And it's a specific people that he has in mind. It's Israel. And these are not the only people that Paul was concerned about. But as he is getting ready to defend the faithfulness of God as it relates to questions that are being lobbied by Israel, he wants to make one thing clear. That he does not carry the rejection of Jesus Christ lightly. The fact that his own people is rejecting him is not in any way him writing them off and saying, well, good riddance. I'm through with you. That's not where we're going to find this text. In fact, we're going to find the opposite is true of Paul, that he has this incredible burden, this incredible passion, this incredible desire to see these people saved. So there's a great impassioned tone that Paul uses as he approaches Israel's unbelief. 
In verse 1, he emphasizes the truthfulness of what he's getting ready to say by using a threefold oath. Now, if you'll notice there, he says, I tell you the truth in Christ. Number one, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me a witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's making it clear. I tell you the truth. I'm not lying. And this is my conscience. So, so help me, God. This is, this is really how I feel. And so he's going through what appears to be great lengths to make it very clear that his heart still breaks for the rejection of Christ among his own people. And he possibly goes to these lengths to show his concern due to some who may have seen Paul as abandoning them. Because Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. This is why God had appointed him. This is why God had called them. This is one of the reasons why there was such a dramatic inclusion of Gentiles among the people of God. It started first with Barnabas and Paul going to Antioch. And then it was there that this inclusion of the Gentiles happened. And then they had this great, huge church business meeting. And one by one, they began lobbying their objections against these Gentiles being part of the church. Paul said his words, Barnabas said his words, Peter said his words, but it was James who swayed the day. James, the brother of our Lord Jesus, who was the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and he stood up and he said, listen to me, brothers, this is the work of God. And from there, it, that began the, the missionary movement of Paul for all the Gentiles. So there is this tendency, maybe he doesn't care about us anymore. Maybe that's what Israel's saying. And Paul says, that's not the, tr- that's not the case. He said, I want you to know my heart. I still love my people. I still ache for the fact that you have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his sincerity is demonstrated here in this text. And now notice we see there's this intensity of this emotional anguish. The emotional turmoil of Israel's rejection is expressed with intensity. So look look in verse 2. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And then it reaches a crescendo in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And the usage of flesh there is that they're of the same ethnic lineage. Not flesh in a negative sense as it relates to sin, but fleshly. They've all descended from the same person, which is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so here Paul has great sorrow, he has this grief in his heart, and he's even making a statement, it's an exaggerated statement, it's a hyperbole, but it's a true statement that he feels, I wish I would go to hell so that some of you would be saved. I wish God would send me to hell so that some of you would be saved. That's his anguish, that's his burden for his people, that's his desire to see them know Christ and to come experience the glorious salvation that can be theirs if they will trust in him. Now, this statement of anguish is mirrored by the prophets, especially Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah says, Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the sound of war. There's impending judgment coming on Israel, and Jeremiah is sent to warn them of the judgment. We see in Jeremiah 6 that he said, We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. 
anguish has taken hold of us, pain as a woman in labor. That's how Jeremiah felt toward his people, that they would receive his word and that they would turn from their ways and that God would save them from the judgment that they deserved. Jesus mirrors this also in his own life. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, we're told that Jesus is sitting outside on a hill and he's overlooking Israel and he weeps over them. He weeps because they have rejected him. He weeps because of their idolatry, because of their sin. So we see the same anguish that's being mirrored here with Paul, that he's in a, in a line of prophets who love their people, including the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 3, as his anguish reaches a crescendo, when Paul wishes himself a curse for the sake of his brothers. And the idea of a curse should be understood in its fullest meaning. In other words, Paul wishes himself to be judged by God instead of his own people. Now, this might seem as though Paul is undermining his own relationship with Christ by placing his fellow Israelites above his, rela- his own relationship. Yet it is because of the fact that the Lord Jesus is, pre- is preeminent in his life that he expresses this desire. And there's three reasons for this. Number one, Romans 9 through 11, the righteousness and faithfulness of God in Christ are being questioned. For Paul, what is at stake is the very essence and character of God. Paul would rather suffer judgment than have God's character tarnished. And so one of the things that's motivating Paul to be like this is God's very character. He's he's not just motivated for his love for his own people, he's also motivated for his love for God. Now, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but this really ought to be one of the main reasons why, what propels us for evangelism and missions, is that God's name might be known. That God's glory might be known among all people. This is the reason why evangelism and missions exist. Because worship doesn't. There are people out there who are rejecting God instead of worshiping Him as the great and glorious and sovereign God that He is. That should be a motivating feature for us. Do you know what's going to happen when Christ comes again? Evangelism and missions will end, but worship will not. And so, really part of the process of evangelizing and making disciples is to make worshipers so that they might see and know God and His glory. So this is what drives Paul. That God's name might be known among the nations. The other reason, I think it comes out of this text and it comes out of his love for God, is that the gospel itself compels Paul to have a heartfelt desire to see his beloved people saved. God demonstrated his love for sinners of whom Paul claimed to be the foremost sinner, the chiefest of sinners, by sending Christ to die on the cross. So God's love for others was not lost on Paul. The same love that caused Christ to sacrifice himself for sinners is now reflected in Paul, who was willing to sacrifice himself for others to be saved. So this naturally flows out of Paul's relationship with Christ. So he's not saying that these people are more important, so I'd rather be judged so that they could receive Christ. 
Instead, he's saying, God is glorious. I want God to be known among them, and I want to mirror Christ and his love, his sacrificial love. And then the other reason that Paul makes this statement is he's actually drawing on another figure from the Old Testament who says this very same thing or or, or expresses it in a very similar way. He's drawing from the example of Moses interceding for Israel in Exodus 32 and verse 32 after the golden calf incident. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Now, which, by the way, one of the arguments that Moses makes to God, that if you judge these people in the desert now, then what will the other nations say about you? So I say that because Moses was also concerned about God's glory. God's faithfulness, God's saving power. That's why he didn't want God to blot Israel out. He loved Israel, but he loved God in his glory. So this is something we should think about as we consider our own engagement with people of the gospel. Because our lack of intentionality of sharing the gospel says a couple of things. It says, number one, we don't really love God as much as we love him. Number two, we don't really love people as much as we say we love them. Because these are the two motivating aspects of evangelism, sharing the gospel with people, inviting them to, inviting the church because of God's preeminence. And you want his preeminence to be known by all people and because you don't want people to go to hell. So these, these are the things that motivate Paul. So... You know, although the language that we see here in this text of accursed, meaning final judgment, is applied to Paul, this is what is at stake for rejecting the Lord Jesus. Eternal judgment. Paul is so concerned for his people that he would be willing to take their curse. The intense grief and concern for Israel is what fueled his evangelism and his missions. Although his ministry was primarily to the Gentiles, it was his habit that everywhere that he would go, the first place that he would preach, the synagogues. He showed his love for his own people is that that is the very first place that he would go and he would preach to them. And he would call them to faith in Christ. Very few people would follow him. There were many of the God-fearing Gentiles that would come out of that synagogue and they'd be looking for Paul, tell us more about this Jesus so that we could be saved. That was, his, that was his priority. And so he went to the synagogue, to his own people first, but also his own ministry to the Gentiles served a twofold purpose. Number one, to win the nations to Christ, and number two, by winning the nations to Christ to provoke Israel to jealousy. That's what we're going to see in Romans chapter 11 in verse 11. He makes that statement. As you see the Gentiles coming in and accepting the Messiah, I'm hoping it's going to spur you to do the very same thing. So even in his ministry to the Gentiles, he still had a heart for Israel. And we see that coming out here in this text. Now, I think that the spirit of this intensity and this anguish and this concern that Paul has for his own people but also for all people, is captured in a quote by Charles Spurgeon. I want you to listen to this. 
If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of exertion. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's the same spirit that I think fits this text and fits Paul's own anguish and concern and burden for lost Israel. It should also mirror our own burden for lost people. Now, with the reality of the fact that Israel is rejecting God, we see in verses 4 through 5 that there is a deep assurance and the God of the gospel. There is nothing more discouraging to see people reject Jesus Christ. I think there's probably nothing more discouraging for a parent who has raised their children in church, who has spoken to them about the gospel, and to see them reject it. And you wonder, with all this that I did for them, all this time that I put into them, all this praying that I've done for decades. Is God going to do anything? And so in verses 4 through 5, Paul reminds us to have this deep assurance in the God of the gospel who can and who does save. And so the, the grief that Paul continues in verses 4 through 5, as he recounts the blessings and privileges and priority that Israel has given with respect to the gospel, Israel was given the greatest privilege to Christ whom they rejected. The failure to realize the saving promises that were given to Israel is all the more heart-wrenching. These saving promises belong to Israel since the time of Abraham, 4,000 years ago, yet time and time again they rejected. Then at the climax of God's saving promises and the Lord Jesus, Israel still rejected. So notice here in the text there are six blessings given to Israel. Adoption, which recalls God's gracious choice of Israel out of the people of the earth to become God's firstborn son. Israel experienced the glory of God, his manifest glory in their, in their midst. Even more, it was to Israel that the word became flesh and dwelt among them. And Israel first saw the glory of God and the only begot, his only begotten son, Jesus. That Israel saw the glory not only in their midst, but even more, it, you know, it, was, the, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they saw his glory on Sinai. They saw it in a tabernacle. They saw it in the temple. Then the third blessing is Israel received the covenant. It was both with Abraham and the Davidic covenant from which the Messiah would come. They also received the giving of the law, the instructions to righteousness, God gave Israel worship. They gave them the feast. They gave them the sacrificial observances, reminding Israel of God's presence. And they were also given the patriarchs. To them belonged Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and all of them. To them belonged the patriarchs. These are privileges that they were given. And yet, if you read the Old Testament, even with these privileges, what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected him. I think there's something for us to think about, especially as it relates to 
America and Christianity is the privileges that we have been given in our time. The very fabric of our country was founded on a, uh, a Judeo-Christian principle. What brought people here to this country was the freedom of worship. Um, the church has permeated our society for hundreds of years. And it's probably been in the last 50 years that there has been a massive diminishing of the influence of church in our society. There, there's been great privileges. In this, in this town alone, churches used to be full of people because the church was the center of society. And I wonder at times if the reason that we are where we are in American Christianity is because we have taken for granted those privileges. And that's why we're in the rapid decline that we are today. We've taken for granted for those privileges. And now we are in the position that we are. And the same thing could be said through of Israel. All the privileges that they had, if they would have just have listened to the word, to the law, to the prophets, they wouldn't be in the position that they were and reject Christ. And this, this deep anguish needs to be held in healthy tension with this last statement concerning Christ. Yes, have a deep anguish for people who reject the gospel, but remember that Christ, who is God over all, has a people who will receive the gospel. The anguish of people's rejection should be underlined with an assurance that the God of the gospel can and will overcome rejection with full acceptance of the gospel, that Jesus came, that he died for sinners, that he rose again, and that he is ascended. That God can overcome that rejection, that hardness of heart. It's one of the first things that we learn in the book of Romans. For the gospel is what? The power of God. It is the very power of God. It is God and God alone will quicken the heart, awaken the heart, so that they might receive Jesus as Lord. And so our confidence ultimately is not in ourselves and our programs and our personality and our gospel tracts and our maybe clever way in which we give a gospel presentation. Our confidence is in Christ who is over all, who will convict and who will save? I mean, we sang this morning, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And he has a people he will save. And our responsibility as Christians is to take that message to them and ask God by his Holy Spirit to convict their hearts so that they might be saved by and through Jesus Christ. And so Paul Paul is not, even though Paul is, is, is this anguish, this intensity, this burden, this hurt, is so much, it tears his heart. He doesn't end that way. He ends with the doxology. Christ is God overall. That's where his confidence is. And that's where our confidence needs to be as well. As we consider those people in our life that are lost, and we're wondering, is my praying... Is it even doing any good? Should I just should I just throw it off? 
It's been so many years since I've, since this, I've been praying for them. Christ is still God over all. Don't quit praying. Don't quit talking to them. Christ is still God over all. And He is alone is worthy of worship. Where is our passion for the glory of Christ to be known among our neighbors and friends? Where is our anguish for unbelievers who will spend eternity in a place the Bible calls hell? Where is our confidence in the Lord Jesus who is God over all to save? To save. May the Christ who is God over all even now save. If you are still under the guilt of your sins, cut off from Christ, eternally condemned, don't stay there. Christ has become a curse for us. He died for our sins and rose again from the dead. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's pray.